So I think this will probably be our last lesson on how we got our Bible. I do have ideas for one more lesson, but we'll see if that comes to pass. I've spent a lot of time this week um, studying for this, probably more, I wouldn't call it studying, I just sort of call it browsing, because I've been looking at manuscripts and texts over 2,000 years, and Latin and different varieties of English, and there's so much online now. I, I did this series some 13 years ago, I think, and there wasn't as much stuff online back then, but now there's hundreds of manuscripts online, and I, Joan can testify, I was spending hours just looking through stuff, and it was a lot of fun, but I have to stop sometime, but hopefully you can enjoy some of the fruit of my work as we look at how God has transmitted his word over the years. So today I want to look at the history of some translations since the original text of scripture, original text, of course, in the Old Testament, Hebrew, some Aramaic, and then Greek in the New Testament. But that changed fairly quickly over the years because as the Romans had established their their empire across the known world, Greek was very common, but as time went on, Latin was more and more common. Um, and so we have early Latin translations. And there's evidence of Latin translations of at least some of the scriptures by the end of the second century. So within a hundred years of the close of the New Testament, there were Latin translations floating around. And the use of the Latin scripture spread to northern Africa, to Europe, even to Britain. So across the Roman Empire up into what is today England, Great Britain, we see evidence of the Latin scriptures. And these were done in various times and places to provide a version of the, script, the scriptures that people could read, much like the English did many years later. So we have somebody who is in a, a, a local place, and they don't know Greek, they don't know Hebrew, and so people could translate it into Latin for the local people to understand. And the Old Testament translations from the Latin were done from the, from the Septuagint. You remember Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament because there weren't a lot of Hebrew scholars around, at least in the Christian uh, part of, of the world. And so they had the, the Greek Old Testament and then the Greek New Testament, so it was easier for them to translate from the Greek into Latin instead of from Hebrew into Latin. Here's an example of an early manuscript. This is Codex Bezi, like a, a bee's eye, from around 400. And Codex Bezi has most of the Gospels and part of Acts, and for some reason, Third John. So, so there's some stuff lost over the years. Um, but this is interesting because it has Greek on one side, and it has a Latin translation on the other. You might have seen those yourself in some, some books that are from one language will have, say, Greek or German or Spanish on one side and English on the other. Well, this has Greek on the left and Latin on the right. And this is a portion of Luke chapter 2 when it says, The angel said to them, that is, the shepherds, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So you can see, if you know a few of the Greek letters or even the Latin letters, Angelus, angel. Here's this word, Timere, you know, word we get timid from, do not be afraid. Here's ho angelos, this is the Greek word for the angel. And we see this word phobe, which you might know is to fear. Euangelizomai, uh, euangelizo, or however you say it in Latin, the word from which we get evangel, evangelist, good news. So we see the, the words good news in Greek and Latin. So somebody 
painstakingly wrote on the, this codex. Remember, codex is like a book we have today, made of, of parchment, uh, animal skin, written in this case, bound in on, on the edge, like we have in our books, and then written on both sides, Greek and then Latin. We get next to the the uh, other Latin translations, the Vulgate. Uh, the Vulgate is the most famous Latin translation. And the word Vulgate comes from the Latin word that means common. It was the common Latin. And we have a story that begins with the Damasus, who's the Bishop of Rome, and he wanted a standard Latin text. And there were many Latin texts, and he instructed his secretary, Jerome, to work on it. And there was an interesting state of the Latin text when Jerome was around, and he, he said this, if we are to rely on the Latin types of texts, let them tell us in reply which we are to trust, for there are almost as many types of texts as there are manuscripts. So in this day, everybody, well, not everybody, you know what I mean, people who knew some Greek and some Latin would want to have their own copy of the scripture translated into Latin. There was no central group that would do this kind of thing, no translation, single translation committee, and so everybody had their own tra- translations, which would be uh, varied. We kind of have that feeling maybe today now with our English translations. There's so many, uh, and that, that's a blessing in one sense, but also if you're in a, have a sermon or a Bible study and somebody has this version and you're doing that version, it can be kind of confusing, which is the one we're going to follow. <clears throat> Augustine said this sometime later. He said, in the earliest days of the faith, when a Greek manuscript came into anyone's hands, and he thought he possessed a little facility in both languages, that is, Greek and Latin, he ventured to make a translation. And he also mentioned that there were an infinite variety of Latin translations, or translators, I should say. So we have a situation with many different kinds of Latin translations, and so the Bishop of Rome wanted to have one standard one. And and Jerome himself was a great scholar. He was born around 347, died in 420, and he began his translation work in 382. He found all the best Latin manuscripts he could find, and as many Greek manuscripts as he could to help as well. And his edition of the Gospels came out in 383, so about a year later, and he released his version of the Psalms the next year, 384. Now that year, the Bishop of Rome died, this man, Damasus, who commissioned Jerome to do this, and then Jerome moved to Bethlehem to devote himself to his scholarship. And in Bethlehem, by the way, this is pretty far away from Rome, to go from Rome to Bethlehem, but he wanted to be in a place where he could get the best Hebrew manuscripts. He realized it was best to translate the Old Testament from Hebrew instead of from the Greek Old Testament. Remember, before it was the Greek Old Testament, sort of the standard. But he said, no, let's go back to the Hebrew. And he completed the Old Testament in 405. So a long time. It took him just about a year to do the Gospels and the, the Psalms, another year. But it took him some 20 years to do the to finish the Old Testament. F.F. Um, F. Bruce, uh, I, I don't have some slide. F.F. F. Bruce says this about this process. Jerome's dependence on the Hebrew text was thought to be a sign of Judaizing, as people were suspicious of this you know, Hebrew. For us, it's a, it's a standard. You want to translate from the original languages when you can, but back then it was considered a step close to Judaism or Judaizing. We want to stick with the Greek. That's, that's sort of the inspired text in their mind. It was thought outrageous that he should cast doubts on the divine inspiration of the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. But Jerome said, no, I want to get as close to the original as I can. I'm going to go to Bethlehem. I'm going to find the, these Hebrew manuscripts and devote myself to the 
translation of the Bible from Hebrew, the Old Testament from Hebrew into Latin. And he kept revising his translation until his death in 420. And I have a few quotes here I think are kind of funny because it shows how people don't really change over the years. He had lots of people who would criticize him for his work. Uh, he had trouble from those who had their favorite texts and translations and didn't like what he did with them. Some of you may have been churches, let's say King James-only churches, and you bring in your New American Standard or, God forbid, the NIV and see what dust-ups happen. But this happened even in the 400s. Jerome, as he spoke to the Bishop of Rome, talking about his revisions on the Gospel, he said this, You urge me to revise the old Latin version. The labor is one of love, but at the same time both perilous and presumptuous. For in judging others, I must be content to be judged by all. Is there a man, learned or unlearned, who will not, when he takes the volume into his hands and perceives that what he reads does not suit his settled tastes, break out immediately into violent language and call me a forger and a profane person for having the audacity to add anything to the ancient books or to make any changes or corrections therein? Now, there are two consoling reflections which enable me to bear the odium in the first place. The command is given by you, who are the supreme bishop, and secondly, even on the showing of those who revile us, readings at variance with the early copies cannot be right. Imagine that uh, Jerome has many translations in front of him. He has of Latin, he has it in Greek, he has the Hebrew later on. He knows the languages, he knows them well. He says, now, this translation is not a good translation. I want to make a better translation. Well, you have people who are used to the good old text that God gave me, the old Latin text that my daddy had. It was good enough for my daddy. My granddaddy, it's good enough for me. And then they see Jerome's version and say, well, Jerome, what a, what a, a profane person. He's a forger. How dare Jerome change God's word? But that's that's what Jerome had to deal with, and that's what people even deal with today. Now, this... Vulgate, this this Latin version that Jerome worked on for all these years, it was revised over the centuries, but it became the most common version of the Bible used in the West. In fact, the famous Gutenberg Bible from the 1450s was an edition of the Vulgate. Now, it's interesting that the Vulgate did not become the official, authentic Latin version until the Council of Trent, which was in 14, or sorry, 1546. So it took over a thousand years for the Roman Catholic Church to say that the Vulgate is the proper version of the Bible, and you might understand why, if you remember your history, because at this time, the Council of Trent not only had the Protestant Reformation, but along with that, the translations into German, to English, and many other languages, and the Roman Catholic Church wanted to clamp down on that. They wanted to say, no, we need a, a Latin text, and Latin text is the, the text that was given to us by Jerome. Now, one thing I learned this week was interesting. Even though the Vulgate superseded the old Latin versions, part of at least one of the old Latin versions survives us, or survives even to today. Uh, remember the, the hymn, Christmas Carol, Angels We Have Heard on High? What do the angels sing? Gloria and Excelsis Deo. Even if people don't know any Latin at all, a lot of them from Christmas carols know Gloria in Excelsis Deo. They might think, well, the, that famous Latin phrase would come from the most famous Latin translation, the Vulgate, but actually it's not. This phrase, Gloria in Excelsis Deo, comes from one of the old Latin texts. So Jerome translated it, Gloria in Altissimus Deo. And I don't know what the right Latin word is, but 
the excelsis comes from some unknown person from even before Jerome, from 1,700 or more years ago. So next time you sing, angels we have heard on high in a few months, and you sing Gloria in excelsis Deo, give a thought to this anonymous person all these years ago who thought that the best translation of what the angels sang in Luke 2 was Gloria in excelsis Deo. Now here's a picture of what may be the oldest Vulgate manuscript that still exists. This is dated to the 400s. Now remember when did Jerome die? 420. So this may have been written in Jerome's lifetime, which is kind of amazing to think about. So we have this this text of Jerome, or, or of the Vulgate, sometime in the 400s. And this is a portion of John 16, 30 to 32. By this we believe that you have come from, that you came from God, and Jesus answered, do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming. And it continues on like this. You can see here, uh, this edition has some marginal notes in it. Um, but yeah, this is 1600 years old. I mentioned Gutenberg before. Here's a portion of the Gutenberg Bible. Remember the Gutenberg Bible was the, the first, in the, in the West anyway, the first uh, movable type printing press. And this is the beginning of Romans. You might be able to see a Paulus and a bunch of other Latin in there. It's not really my strength. But we have the, the letters here in black were, were done in the printing press. In some cases, the red ones were as well, which was difficult because you had to have two sets of plates for this, right? One with the black, and you do the black ink and press it, and then you get the other plate and put this under the red ink. And this, this P here for Paulus would be added later as a decoration. So they... And the plates that they would print leave a blank spot here for ornamentation. And here's another picture. This is a portion of Leviticus. Obviously, back in those days, they couldn't do this sort of fancy stuff on a printing press. So they would print the black, and they would print the red in some cases. In some cases, it would be done by hand um, because it was so time-consuming. And then somebody would add later this ornamentation, these, these beautiful decorations, on some of them. And so if you were very wealthy, you would say, yes, give me the, the deluxe package, and they would give you a deluxe Bible. If you didn't have so much money, you might just get the, the, the cheap version, which wouldn't have all the ornamentation in it. Now, let's move on to some English versions. English versions. I mentioned before that there were Latin texts that made it all the way to Great Britain very early on, and there were Christians in Britain, at least by the 4th century, but these Angles, Saxons, and Jutes that, that, that we kind of know about from history didn't arrive till a century later. And these Angles, Saxons, and Jutes were evangelized by the 6th and 7th centuries. And their language came to be known as Old English. And here's an example. You might remember uh, back from history uh, a guy named the Venerable Bede. The Venerable Bede, his name's Bede, B-E-D-E, lived from about 672 to 735. And he was a monk who lived in Britain, he wrote something called the Ecclesiastical History of the English People. Now, remember, this is so ecclesiastical means the church history of the English people. Are, and he went back to before the time of Christ, and he was called the father of English history. Now, this was, again, very early on in the, the 6 and 700s, had, but he wrote about several centuries before himself. And there are many of his writings that survive in Latin, but what's of interest to us now is that he is said to have prepared a translation of the Gospel of John into Old English. 
just before he died, but that has not been preserved. So it would be interesting to have not only much of his Latin writings, but if we could have some of his his Greek or his translations from Greek into Old English for us, um, or maybe from Latin. Um, but there are other Old English texts, but apparently not the whole Bible. So there wasn't a one group or set of people who said, we're going to translate from Latin into English at the time. But there are Old English versions of the, the Gospels, the Psalms, the Pentateuch, and some of the Old Testament historical books. So Christians would focus on the, the Gospels, certainly. Sometimes the the writings of Paul, they would get to the Psalms and, and the early portions of the Scriptures. Now here we have a, a picture of a hexateuch. You know the Pentateuch, the first five books. This is the Pentateuch plus Joshua. And this is a, a lavishly illustrated uh, version that was uh, from around the year 1000. So before the Norman Conquest, 1066, around 1000. And note here, this is, what do you think this is? Picture of. Yeah, Noah's Ark. What does it look like? It looks like a Viking ship, doesn't it? So these people who were intimately associated with Vikings, when they thought of a boat, well, we're going to make a giant boat and we're going to put uh, a head on it like this that looks like the old uh, raiding ships that the, the Vikings had. And you see the animals in here, and you, can see, you can't quite read it here very well, but it says N-O-E, Noah, here. So you have Noah, and you have his wife and his three sons and, and three daughters-in-law. And uh, there are other pictures here as well. So there's uh, manuscripts of, of the first six books of the Bible with some 400 illustrations. And I, I spent a lot of time just clicking through. I didn't even have the whole thing, but it was just amazing to think of this thing that's lasted over a thousand years and these pictures that, that somebody drew to illustrate the scriptures. And this, the, the writing here is Old English again. And I'm no linguist at all, but it can be easier to read the Greek and the, and the Latin sometimes than the Old English because the Old English is, is a foreign language, you might have noticed. Uh, it's, it's very different from English, although you can still find a few words here and there you can pick out. We'll see it again later. Now let's move on to Middle English. And we have, uh, again, 1066 was a Norman conquest when the, the, some Frenchmen invade England. And then we have French-influencing English. And so that marks the transition to Middle English, from Old English to Middle English. And we're getting closer and closer, century by century, into what is more recognizable today. We come to John Wycliffe, who lived about three, 1324 and, and died in 1384. And he studied and taught at Oxford, which is amazing. If you've been to Oxford, I haven't yet. I want to go someday. But Oxford was already 200 years old when he was there or so. This just shows the history of a place like Oxford. And John Wycliffe is called the morning star of the Reformation. That is, he's before the Reformation, but he is reforming before men like Martin Luther show up. He spoke about out of, against the leaders of the church. And remember, this is still all the church that's presided over by the Pope in Rome before the Reformation. He called the Bishop of Rome the Antichrist, the proud, worldly priest of Rome, and the most cursed of clippers and cut purses. And he called the doctrine of transubstantiation unscriptural. And he anticipated some of Luther's attacks by more than 1,000 years, or 100 years, I should say. No. Uh, Luther criticized the the theft, really, of, of gold from the people. 
And Wycliffe was talking about that 100 years before. And he rattled a lot of cages, but he survived because he had friends in high places. Um, Philip Schaff, the church historian, says this, Wycliffe's chief service for his people, next to the legacy of his own personality, was his assertion of the supreme authority of the Bible for clergy and laymen alike, and his gift to them of the Bible in their own tongue. His statements setting forth the scriptures as the clear and sufficient manual of salvation and insisting that the literal sense gives their plain meaning were as positive and unmistakable as any made by Luther. In his treatise on the value and authority of the scriptures, which with 1,000 printed pages, more is said about the Bible as the church's appointed guidebook than was said by all the medieval theologians together. Imagine how radical this is. This man who says that the Bible is our authority, not the man in Rome or other church authorities. And I'm going to, because I love the scriptures and that's the foundation of our faith, I'm going to give them to the people in their own language. Not just have them sit in a church hearing Latin, which they don't understand, and not knowing what God expects of them. And so John Wycliffe was committed to preach and teach the Bible in English at a time when Bible study by the laity was discouraged or outright forbidden. And John Wycliffe knew no Hebrew and perhaps no Greek, so he and his colleagues translated from Latin into English. And Wycliffe himself mostly focused on the New Testament. Now, his New Testament was completed around 1380 and the Old Testament around 1382. Wycliffe's followers traveled all over England and they preached and uh, read the scriptures in English, Middle English at this time. Wycliffe died before he could be tried as a heretic, but 40 years after his death, his body was dug up and his remains were burned and the ashes were thrown into a river. So that's what they thought of Wycliffe, but again, it was 40 years after he died, so it didn't bother him. Here's a a picture of Wycliffe's translation into Middle English. This is the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. And the text is from the late 1300s, so it's not very long after Wycliffe's death. So you can see here, roughly, this this really fancy T, the book, this looks like a W, but the book of the generations of, this is an abbreviation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, you can recognize maybe David there, Um, the son, it's a C, it's actually an S sound, C-O-N-E, of Abraham, recognize that name, Abraham, Um, uh, and then we have, let's see, uh, Isaac, we have Jacob, and so forth. And we have, so you can recognize some of the words in Middle English. We're getting closer to where we can actually see these words and recognize them. Still not quite completely comprehensible, but a lot closer. So beautiful um, writings. And this is, again, before Gutenberg, so this is all handwritten. You can even see little lines under here, like rule markings, that would help you get things lined up nicely. We'll move next to early modern English. Early modern English. And around this time, there was a great interest in learning Greek and Hebrew among many scholars. Remember, Wycliffe didn't know Hebrew, didn't know much Greek. But a little later, there was a lot of interest in Greek and Hebrew. And then we get the printing press in the middle 1400s. And then the Protestant Reformation fired a great interest in the scriptures, especially in native languages. And so we come to this man, William Tyndall, who lived from about 1490 to 1536. 
and he was fluent in Greek and Hebrew, and he also knew French, Latin, Italian, Spanish, and German, besides English, of course. So he knew all the languages he needed for this. And he wanted to do his translation work in England, but it was resisted there. And so he continued his work on the European continent. So this man, Tyndale, was English, but he had to go to Europe to, to do his work. Now, his New Testament was translated from the Greek, as I mentioned before, and published in 1535, 1525, rather, three years after Luther translated the Bible into German. And Tyndale's translation was the first New Testament translation into English from the Greek. He published the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament books of Moses, in 1530. By the end of his life, six years later, he had translated the historical books, but not published them. Uh, His Bibles had to be smuggled into England, and they were frequently confiscated and burned. And He himself had to work in hiding sometimes, and eventually he was captured and imprisoned in 1535, and this was in the continent of, of Europe. And he said this in the last winter of his life, 1535 and 36. And he was in prison in what is today Belgium to someone in authority. He said this, I believe, right worshipful, that you are not unaware of what may have been determined concerning me. Wherefore, I beg your lordship, and that by the Lord Jesus, that if I am to remain here through the winter, you will request the commissary to have the kindness to send me from the goods of my she has a warmer cap for I suffer greatly from cold in the head and am afflicted with a perpetual catarrh, which is much increased in this cell. A warmer coat also, for this which I have is very thin, a piece of cloth too, to patch my leggings. My overcoat is worn out. My shirts also are worn out. He has a woolen shirt if he will be good enough to send it. I have also with him leggings of thicker cloth to put on above. He has also warmer nightcaps. And I ask to be allowed to have a lamp in the evening, It is indeed wearisome sitting alone in the dark. But most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the commissary that he will kindly permit me to have the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and Hebrew dictionary, that I may pass the time in that study. In return, may you obtain what you most desire, so only that it be for the salvation of your soul. But if any other decision has been taken concerning me to be carried out before winter, I will be patient, abiding the will of God, the glory of the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ, whose spirit, I pray, may ever direct your heart. Amen. Sounds a lot like what Paul said in 2 Timothy, where the, I think last week, when Paul was in prison, asked Timothy to go get what? Yeah, get, bring the cloak. It's cold in winter. Bring the parchments. And that's what Tyndale wanted here, too. He wanted to be warm, but most of all, he wanted his copy of the scriptures. And the the tools that would help him continue his translation work. That was the work of his life. That's what he loved. And he besought this person to to give him those things. And he also is concerned for the soul of even those who had imprisoned him. Now, Fox's Book of Martyrs says says this about Tyndale's death. Now, remember, um, John Wycliffe was not uh, martyred, but his bones were... Um, disinterred and he was, they were burned. And, but Tyndale was indeed martyred. And it says this, at last, after much reasoning, when no reason would serve, although he deserved no death, he was condemned by virtue of the emperor's decree made in the assembly at Augsburg. Brought forth to the place of execution, he was tied to the stake, strangled by the hangman, 
and afterwards consumed with fire at the town of Vilvorde, A.D. 1536, crying at the stake with a fervent zeal and a loud voice, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Such was the power of his doctrine and the sincerity of his life that during the time of his imprisonment, which endured a year and a half, he converted, it is said, his keeper, the keeper's daughter, and others of his household. As touching his translation of the New Testament, because his enemies did so much to carp at it, pretending it to be full of heresies, he wrote to John Firth, or Frith as followeth, I call God to record against the day we shall appear before our Lord Jesus, that I never altered one syllable of God's word against my conscience, nor would do to this day if all that is in earth, whether it be honor, pleasure, or riches, might be given me. End quote. So he was under pressure to translate things in a way that would please the king, would please the, the bishops, please the pope, but he wouldn't do it. He would translate what God's word said and, and nothing more. Um, some scholars say this about Tyndale's version. Tyndale's version of the New Testament provided the basis for all the successive revisions between his day and ours. Now remember, this is in the 1400s. Um, sorry, 1500s. Um, the King James Version is practically a fifth revision of Tyndale's revision. Now here is uh, a picture. No, I should have put that up before. Here's a picture of the beginning of the Gospel of Mark from 1526. This is Tyndale's translation, and you can remember this is um, this is still um, Middle English at this point. No, we're early modern English, aren't we? Um, yeah, early modern English. And so you can you can read some of this um, the little word. There's the word the, of course. The gospel, we have the, this sort of funny-looking long S. Looks like an F. The gospel of St. Mark, the first chapter, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophet Behold, I send my messenger before your face, before thy face, and so forth. So you can read much of this, I think, fairly easily. Here's a picture of St. Mark uh, working on his... Notice how St. Mark dressed. He's dressed like people in the 1500s were back then, at a, at a desk and with the same kind of clothes. But anyway, that's, that's um, Tyndale's translation. And this is one of only three known copies of the 1526 edition of the illegal Tyndale translation of the New Testament printed in Worms, Germany. So this had to be printed in Germany, not in England, because of all the persecution in England. And if this was captured, imagine this being burned by somebody because it didn't conform to what the, the church wanted. Next we come to Miles Coverdale. Miles Coverdale. And he was an assistant to Tyndale his work, the translation was not from the originals, but from Latin. And he also used Luther's um, German versions and Tyndale's English versions. And Coverdale's version was the first complete English Bible published in England, 1535. And at this point, Henry VIII, remember him? Henry VIII was the, the king, and he had broken with the Roman Catholic Church. And so now Henry VIII was starting his own church, the Church of England, and so wanted his own versions of the scriptures. And so now, if you wanted your translation work to be approved by those in authority, you didn't have to get the approval of the bishops or the, the Roman pontiff. You had to get the approval of, of the king and his, his nobles and, and his church hierarchy now. And so Miles Coverdale uh, created his translation in 1535 around that time with the approval of Henry VIII. 
We have then the Great Bible. And it's called so because of its size and its cost. It was about 14 inches tall, which is quite a thing back then. And this uh, Great Bible was prepared also by Miles Coverdale and approved by Henry VIII and placed in all the churches. That's pretty good if you're a publisher to say the king put this in all the churches. So you have a a built-in market for that. Now here's a picture of the Great Bible. Uh, You can see it says the Bible in English. It spells Bible with a Y. Bible in English. And English also has a Y here. But I I found this interesting because it might be hard to see here, but up here you see God giving out his word to all these scrolls and things. Who's just sitting here in the middle? Yeah, there's here starting the eighth, the king sitting on his throne, and he has copies of the scriptures, and he's handing them out. On his right hand, we have the, the churchmen. Um, on the left hand, we have the nobles. And this, this is a picture of Thomas Cranmer, you might have heard of him. He's the Archbishop of Canterbury. And we have Thomas Cromwell, who was the leader of the nobility, one of Henry's chief ministers. So we have God giving the scriptures. And he gives the scriptures to the king. And the king dispenses them to the church and to the nobles. And then the church hands them out to the local parish priest and the noble, the, the chief minister hands them out to the other nobles. So this is pretty subtle, isn't it? The word of God comes from God through the king, through the church, down, which is not exactly what we believe, not only as Protestants, but as Americans, to think that the Bible comes by the, the glory of the king as uh, especially a man like Henry VIII, is is repulsive to us. We move now to the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible, and it's strange, this is an English translation, in fact, the most famous English translation of its time. Why is an English translation in Geneva, that is Geneva, Switzerland? Well, there's a historical reason to that. We have, after Henry VIII, we have the persecution from Queen Mary I, the Bloody Mary, who restored Roman Catholicism to England after Henry VIII had brought the Church of England and allowed English translations. And now we have Queen Mary coming in and and causing great damage to the Church. Um, and so there were many English refugees, including John Knox from Scotland, and they fled to Geneva and by God's providence, that was the time John Calvin was there. And so these men from England got to spend time with John Calvin and other uh, European reformers. And this Geneva Bible was translated from the original languages, and there were also marginal comments. There were some maps, other study aids, like summaries before each book, uh, dictionary illustrations, indexes, cross-references, much like our study Bibles today. If you have a study Bible in your hand, it's very much like this. And this was also the first version that would divide the the scriptures into verses and also put into italics words that weren't in the original. And these notes in Geneva, as you might expect, had a reformed Calvinistic point of view. And one other thing about this, which is so important, is that most editions were small and sold at a moderate price. If you were an ordinary Christian, you might have a, a great Bible in your church but you couldn't have one in your home. They were too expensive and, and too unwieldy. You certainly couldn't carry it with you for your morning devotions at the river. And so this this version of, of the Bible, the Geneva Bible, you had something you could carry yourself. It had the scriptures translated very well with notes 
to help you understand the, the Word of God and had maps again, cross-references. And this was the version used by Shakespeare and John Bunyan. So, and, and many others of this time would have known the, the Geneva Bible. This Geneva Bible, I think it's kind of funny, it's called also the Britches Bible because it says in Genesis 3-7, Adam and Eve made themselves britches when they, after they'd fallen. So it's called the Britches Bible. It's also called the Pilgrim's Bible because it was carried by the pilgrims when they sailed to America in 1620. You might assume that the pilgrims had the King James Bible. They didn't. Um, things were a little fraught between the pilgrims and England at that point, weren't they? So they had this Geneva Bible, this Reform Bible they brought with them. And so it was called the Pilgrim's Bible. Now, at, at this point, as it was finally published, uh, Elizabeth I was the queen, and Protestants were protected after Bloody Mary's reign. And so this Geneva Bible was dedicated to the most virtuous and noble Queen Elizabeth, Queen of England, France, and Ireland, your humble subjects of the British Church at Geneva, with grace and peace from God the Father through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so this dedication was written by those who had been driven from their home country by a tyrannical queen, Queen Mary, and now they are dedicating this to the, to the Queen Elizabeth with the hope that they would be treated better by her. So, quote, oh, sorry, I think I clicked too, too far. Um, Bruce Metzger, who's a, a scholar of such things, he said this, it was chiefly owing to the dissemination of copies of the Geneva version of 1560 that a sturdy and articulate Protestantism was created in Britain, a Protestantism which made a permanent impact upon Anglo-American culture. So the Protestantism of England was grounded in the Geneva Bible, not so much because it was later in the, the 1611 King James Version, but it's the Geneva Bible. And one thing, though, is that this particular version, the Geneva Bible, was resisted by many because of the Calvinist bent of its notes. Here's a portion of the Geneva Bible. You can see here, a study aid. Here's a map of the Holy Land. You can see things like Nazareth, Galilee. It's not really true to what things really look like. But then you have, um, here you have Jericho and Jerusalem and so forth. Um, so, not really the way we might do it today, but it is useful to at least get an idea of where things are in relation to each other. Um, another one here we can see, this is the beginning of Matthew, and you may not be able to see the writing all that clearly in here, but you can certainly read this in English, the Holy Gospel of Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew, um, the books of the, genie, the generation of Jesus Christ, and so forth. But you can sort of see here, here's some marginal notes to help you. Again, it's not really clear on this picture. You see the marginal notes and also cross-references. At the beginning of each chapter, there's a summary of that. And you can see also the versifications, which are important. Even things like paragraph markers and a lot of the things we have in our own study Bibles today were there um, almost 500 years ago in this Geneva Bible of 1560. Now we move on to the King James Version, most famous English version, called the Authorized Version. So-called authorized, why? Because King James authorized it, yeah, that was it. King James uh, said, let's have a, our own translation. And so he had some scholars um, in the early 1600s work on this. The James, King James said of the Geneva Bible that its comments were, quote, very partial, 
untrue, seditious, and savoring too much of dangerous and traitorous conceits. Now, this was some 50 years before he was around, but he didn't like the notes. He was mad about the notes. Uh, For example, of the Hebrew midwives who refused to obey Pharaoh's command to kill the baby boys in Exodus 1, the note said this, Their disobedience to the king was lawful, though their dissembling, that is, their lying, was evil. And then a note on Daniel 11.36, which speaks of a tyrannical king. So long the tyrants shall prevail as God has appointed to punish his people, but he shows that it's for a time. That is, tyrants only last for a little while. These men who wrote this note knew that. They'd been kicked out of England by Bloody Mary. But King James wasn't so happy about these notes to talk about tyrannical kings, and it's okay to disobey those in authority, and it's just not what he wanted. So let's just publish the Bible without notes. And there's other things, too, certain certain slants that would make it more um, amenable to Church of England kinds of things, that the church structure and so forth. Do you translate the, the word ecclesia from Greek into the word church, or is it assembly, congregation? Those can have important meanings to those in authority. If they, if they want you to read the word church, because when you think of church, you don't think of the local assembly. You think of the organization of which the king is the earthly head. So there are those kinds of issues that come up in translation. But it was clear, that as, as King James was thinking about the state of the Bible in his day, it was clear that the Geneva Bible was a superior translation to, say, the Great Bible, and later the Bishop's Bible. But, and it was still very popular some 40 years after it came out. And so, the translators appointed by King James uh, consulted all the English versions they could with many foreign translations, looked at old and new Latin versions along with the Hebrew and Greek. So they wanted to get an idea of what all the, the state of the texts were. And after some decades, of course, the authorized version of 1611 became the most used, sort of the standard English Bible and still read by many to this day. Uh, the scholar Philip Comfort says this about the King James. The King James Version has become an enduring monument of English prose because of its gracious style, majestic language, and poetic rhythms. No other book has had such a tremendous influence on English literature, and no other translation has touched the lives of so many English-speaking people for centuries and centuries, even until the present day. I hear some pictures of the 1611 Version, and you can see here the dedication... This is, I think, kind of amusing. Again, as a, an American, it um, says, "Great." This is dedicated to the Most High and Mighty James, a Prince James, by the grace of God, King of Great Britain, France, and Ireland. By the way, see France in there too. Kind of the political situation back in, in this day. Defender of the faith, etc. And and then it says below, uh, "Great and manifold were the blessings, Most Red Sovereign." which Almighty God, the Father of all mercies, bestowed upon us, the people of England, when he first sent your majesty's royal person to rule and reign over us. So, get King James. He's the one who kind of got this thing rolling. You want to make sure. I'm sure they're sincere, but they want to make sure the king knows how, how grateful they are to him for the opportunity to do this. Imagine writing a note like this. The New American Standard Bible writing it to the president or something. <laughs> just, just strange. I know it's a different situation, but uh, it still kind of galls me a bit to see this sort of thing. Uh, here's King James Version of Psalm 23. 
Uh, notice here it has cross-references. Um, even as our Bibles do today, it even has some translation notes. For example, here, this um, this dagger right here goes here. Um, so here's um, David's confidence in God's grace. Psalm of David, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the, the still waters and so forth. Spelled a little differently. Spells me with two E's, but we get the idea. Even has this, these notes here. Hebrew, um, pastures of tender grass. Or here in Hebrew, waters of quietness. So it's trying to say, this is what the Hebrew actually literally means, but this is how we translate it ourselves. So, again, much like the, the Bibles we have even today. Now, any questions so far? We're just about done here. I want to go through a few things fairly quickly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can, you can even yeah you can get in fact similar editions even today. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great gift, isn't it? Yeah. I thought as we wind things up, it would be interesting to see some side-by-side translations of Matthew 6, 9. Um, you know, praying this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And the history of English translations of the Bible is really wrapped up in the history of English, the English language, much as German is with Luther's translations. But here's, I won't try and read the Latin here, but you have the Vulgate, Jerome, about 383. And so... Some of these words, you know, you understand, but you, you understand the word pater, father, um, uh, sanctificatur, I, I, my, my kids are going to get on my, me for this Latin stuff, but see, this is a word from which we get sanctification, hallowed be your name, nomen, name. We have here uh, the one Old English translation of the Lord's Prayer from about 950, uh, and you can see a lot of these words aren't recognizable, but you see father, father, um, heofnum, heofnas, two words for heaven in Old English, and uh, gehalgad is hallowed, you sort of hear the word hallowed in there a bit too, and noma, again name. So a couple of words you can pick out of the Old English perhaps. Here we have the West Saxon Gospels around the year 1000, again still Old English, but we have here... Um, well, here's the word gibidath, uh, which is like uh, to to pray, to, to bid, that kind of thing. Father, um, here's the word art. Heofonum is heaven. And then nama and hallowed and so forth. So again, a few words pick out from the Old English. Now as we get closer, we're in Middle English from Wycliffe in 1395. Um, you can see a lot of this is readable to us. And thus ye should pray, our Father that art in QNS, let's say heaven, hallowed be thy name. So again, Middle English is getting it much closer to modern English. Uh, Tyndale, 
1526, after this manner, therefore pray ye, O our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Again, I can't do the accent, whatever it is, but again, you can get pretty close to English, modern English here. Here's Miles Coverdale, a little while later, after this manner, therefore shall ye pray, O our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Geneva Bible, much the same. And here we get to the King James Version in 1611. After this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. A few things like manner spelled with one N, ye spelled with two E's, um, and so forth. But again, much the same. And they would often uh, print a U for a V. Here again is the King James to compare it with the King James Version from, it was a revision from uh, 150 or so years later. And this is spelled more like we're used to. After this manner, two ends, therefore pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then even in American Standard Version 1901, it's much like the King James Version from 150 or so years before that. After this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The Revised Standard Version, even as far as 1946, still has the arts and so forth. Pray them like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But as we get further into the 1900s and 20th century, we're getting further away from the arts and thou's and so forth. The original New American Standard in 1971 would say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But then when it updates it in 1995, it takes out the arts. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then the NIV, which was published around the same time as the New American Standard was originally, from 1973, it's geared toward an international audience, people who don't necessarily speak English as a first language, and wants to take out the these and thous and so forth. So out of the gate, it says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then the English Standard Version, which I think a lot of you have. 2001, pray them like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So, again, a real compact history of the development of English just in this one verse from the Lord's Prayer. Any final questions? We're really out of time, but I wanted to give you a chance. All right, let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your goodness in giving us your word through many twists and turns, many translations, many men and women over the years, painstakingly writing down your word hour after hour, dipping a a quill in ink on parchment or papyrus or uh, setting type and printing presses, hand-drawing ornamentation because they love your word, wanted to make it beautiful to adorn the word with beautiful illustrations. Lord, we thank you for those who have given so much, even men like William Tyndale, who gave his life along with others to, to translate your word, to transmit your word. May we be faithful in our own day to, to love your word, even above our own necessary physical needs, to desire to know it and to transmit it to to give it to others, and to live it that Christ might be seen in us in our own day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.